the nonprofit MBA purpose is to provide new business insights and fresh creative ideas for executive directors and their teams that will help them improve their organization. Here is your host, Stephen Halasnik. Welcome, everyone. My name is Stephen Halasnik, and I am co-founder and managing partner of Financing Solutions. Financing Solutions is the leading provider of lines of credit to nonprofits. Our line of credit program is easy, fast, inexpensive, and costs nothing until used, making it a great cash backup plan. If you would like to learn more about the program, please visit us at nonprofitmbapodcast.com. And if, this, and if you decide to apply today, we will even give you a $250 credit on file that you can use at any time. Or feel free to give us a call at 862-207-4118. Again, that's nonprofitmbapodcast.com if you want to learn about the line of credit. Today, I'm excited to be speaking with Mike Burns from BWB Solutions. Mike has over 20 years of experience as a nonprofit manager. Since 1994, Mike has been a partner and organizational development consultant at BWB Solutions. His work focuses on strategic and business planning, nonprofit governance, and helping nonprofits assess the readiness for mergers. His blog, Nonprofit Board Crisis, highlights nonprofit governance matters. As a central research team member, he recently completed two national surveys on the roles, relationships, and preparation of nonprofit board chairs. Mike has a BS in business administration from Marquette University, a master's degree in nonprofit management with a focus on governance from Lesley College, and and a graduate certificate in nonprofit marketing management from the University of Hartford. Mike, welcome to today's Nonprofit MBA podcast. Great, thanks to be here. So you know, Mike, like Mike, like most guests, um, you know, I usually um, kind of ask the topic that that they think that they want to talk about, and then I kind of um, you know give some advice. In this case, you you had a great topic that I thought was really good. You uh, the topic of today's discussion is board chairs, preparing, selecting, supporting board chairs. Um, tell me a little bit about why you thought this was a, a, a good topic. So I, I'm, despite what's going on <laughs> nationally, I honestly believe that it, within nonprofits, the, the break or make of a nonprofit is what goes on, uh, obviously, with the uh, senior leadership, uh, uh, paid leadership, as well as the senior volunteer leadership, the senior volunteer leadership being the officers and particularly the board chairs, that as board chairs fly, so do the boards. As board chairs don't fly, so do the boards. And we have evidence of that and we've got surveys and there are academics who have done that homework. Um, But we know that uh, while many, many question whether or not boards matter at all, we know that when boards matter, when boards exert themselves, uh, it is because they've had the leadership to both have conversations among themselves and make decisions, take action around areas that they think are important to moving mission forward. So for me, board chairs representative of that leadership uh, matter a lot. And I'm on this campaign to say, hey, they matter a lot, so we should make sure that they're as good as they can be. Yeah, I, I would think that, you know, the power 
of having a great board for an executive director is is probably one of the most important ways to execute a great nonprofit organization. I mean, would you agree with that? I I do, and and there lays one of the first questions uh, of the whole thinking about boards and execs, which is whose organization is it to begin with? Uh, you know, way back in the beginning of most nonprofits, it's uh, volunteers getting together, sort of being leaders in the early stages of board development, you know, the, what I call the infancy stage and maybe even the juvenile stage. Uh, those two stages in particular, boards are spent, spend much of their time doing the work of the nonprofit, not governing. And, yep. and there is a distinction between board and governing. Board is the structure. Uh, this is, comes to us from David Renz, who's a researcher out in Kansas. Uh, boards are the structure. Governance is the work. And again, in the early stages, boards don't do that work uh, of governing. They do the work of making the organization work. And then someday they hire an exec, someone to represent their interests and make sure that mission moves forward. Um, so at that juncture, it becomes a question, and, and it may take a while, as to who owns the organization. And I mean own with quotes, because obviously the ownership of an organization in this sense is the public. The, the uh, board is actually the proxy for the public, represents the public interests, and, so, and actually the taxpayers' interests. And so that, that's a construct that the IRS created or the Congress through the IRS. And so in the sense of ownership and whose board it is, we end up asking these questions of, well, should the board be driving the exec? Should the exec be driving the board? Where does performance review come in so that the board is actually satisfied that mission is being moved forward and that compliance and risk management is in hand? So yes, I agree with you. And raise those other questions about ownership, because I think that question matters when we start then thinking about what should we expect of boards versus what we should expect of execs. So um, what I want to do is I want to pick apart each one of these the, these titles and the title that we came up with, um, these words, and talk about that. But before I get to that, for which is you know, preparing, selecting, and supporting board chairs, right? So before I get to that, do you going back to your question? Do you think that the what what is what do you think is the main role should be of the board chairman of the board chair? I I think the board chair in the in the ultimate is to be the cheerleader of the board. It's to give the board the platform for actively actually implementing its governance uh, responsibilities. Uh, I think the board chair is not the one who, uh, like an exec, gathers the team, organizes the team for themselves. I think that's a collective action. And my apologies for my puppy, if you can hear her. Yeah, we can hear her. Yeah. Sorry. She's, okay. she's expressing her voice at her 11-month hour. Um, but uh, it, it, let's see. So the the idea that the board chair leads through supporting is is an important concept in that sense. I think the board chair is not the director of the board. It's not the, he, the person's not the exec. Uh, and so the, the chair, the other main job of the chair, though, if one job is cheerleader of the board and getting the board to the catalyst, the other job is to 
partner with the exec and ensure that uh, on behalf of the board, the exec is being supported. And and so just to clarify too, uh, you know, the executive director, which is probably more than fifty percent of our listeners, what do you think their key role is? Their their key role is day to day. They their job is to ensure is to understand mission, understand the will of the board, and execute. Uh, and I think they should inform the board in terms of helping the board understand what direction makes sense in terms of mission. But I think that the, the primary job is execute. Yeah, I think the problem we run into is that, you know, a lot of our listeners today um, have uh, nonprofit boards that are under $5 million in revenue. That's so right. they're, they're smaller, right? Yep, yep. Um, you know, many might be around a million dollars. The problem is, I think, you know, the people who started the organization um, were the executive directors. And then, the, and then they're the ones that go out and get, you know, say, okay, well, I need to form a board. Yeah. Right. So I think, I mean, would you agree with that? That it's usually for smaller nonprofits, it's the executive director who is the founder of the nonprofit. I, I, I don't have statistics. I, I, my experience says maybe, I, I think it's a smaller number that are the execs are the founders. And so let's change the language. Let's modify the language a little. If we talk about, uh, founders who then take on them and who do in the process take on the mantle of exec, then that's a fair number of folks, and particularly in the small organizations. And we know statistically we're talking roughly 70% of all the nonprofits are less than the 5 million or, or 10, and it's probably right now is 10 million is scale. So, you know, it's really expensive to operate a nonprofit for less than 10 million. It's just you, you have to re, you duplicate everything administratively and then you don't get really afforded until you're in the at least over the five, but even up to 10. So I, I don't think it's the majority of folks that are execs as founders. I think that that uh, nonprofits are not mirroring the small family businesses that we see dominate America. Uh, but I, I think. Mm, there's as many board or volunteers that pull together uh, the um, nonprofit as there are these folks who become execs. So I, I, if if I were generous, I'd say the smaller nonprofits, maybe fifty percent are uh, you know exec founder run, while the rest are volunteers who pulled it all together. All right. So so coming back to you know. Um, our topic to today, I mean, we're not that we're not off of it, but so the word that we have here is preparing. So as a board chair, when we talk about preparing, what are we talking about? So in 2015, uh, as uh, uh, maybe it, not, sorry, it was more like 2018, we, uh, part of the Alliance for Nonprofit Go uh, Management the Governance Affinity Group did a survey. We got a national survey. We got 635 nonprofit board chairs responding, which is not an easy task because you don't get a lot of addresses of board chairs in, you know, in, around anywhere. Um, so we used our network and what's called a, a snowballing effect to basically got one person to tell another person, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what we learned and what I think is obvious from 
you know, even observation, which if you went around, you'd say, how'd you get to be a chair? Well, uh, the common answer of how people got to be a chair is, well, nobody else wanted the job. And and actually, I think that showed up for us like 40 percent of them. So Uh, uh. we don't you know, nobody else wanted the job now. So that so that alone tells you. Folks are not don't intentionally they they do in in, you know, the other 30 or 40 percent, but don't often intentionally go into the nonprofit thinking, oh, boy, I get to be a chair and I am really looking forward to that. And then they go off and do lots of reading and uh, they observe all the people inside and they've gone to other organizations. None of that happens. Folks get to be chairs and very few of them have any experience of what it means to be a leader what it means to run a board meeting, what it means to form a partnership with an exec, uh, what it means to understand Robert's rules of order, if those are the rules they're going to use, what it means to have a vote or an action, an informed action, what strategic planning looks like, what board recruitment looks like uh, or should could look like, uh, what board orientation or what we now call onboarding is, uh, is like. None of that happens for most folks who take on the mantle of being a board chair. There lays the first challenge in terms of what is preparation? What should preparation be? Most folks get prepared only because they've observed, this we learned, most folks get prepared because they've observed the chair before them. Now think about the consequence of that. You have a bad chair, you're gonna have a sequence of bad chairs. Uh, I mean, it's not guaranteed. You're also going to have a bad board too. Let's You're also going to have, yeah, it's universal, yeah. right? It's a complete yeah. picture. So, so that's what I mean by preparation. Most folks, there, there are not. It's, it's coming, but there are not, for the most part, universal programs for orienting folks who would be chairs in terms of how to be a chair. Yeah, you know, and I, I think I have to say this um, in that, I, you know, I was on a board for several years and and I, I wasn't the board chairman, but I went through, we went through, you know, uh, you know four uh, or five chairmen in seven years. And if I was a chairman, you know, and I was the first time chairman, I think one of the things that, I mean, you mentioned some, you know, you have to read, you have to learn, you have, but I, I'd want to, you know, you you're, sometimes you're only a chairman for a short period of time, which could be a year, two, or three. Yeah. And you certainly want to get up to speed as quickly as you can, because as we just mentioned, your board will be uh, reflective if you are a poor leader as a board chairman. Absolutely. And, and so I think one of the things I would do, and I'll just throw it out there, and you know, and that because you didn't put it on your list, which I, you know, I'm sure it's on there. I think I would seek out someone who's been a board chairman for a long time. And and ask them if if I could uh, sit in on the board meetings, if they could mentor me. Yep. You know, I think I think that would be one of the quickest ways for me to get up to speed quickly about making good improvements. Um, what do you think about that? You, you are dead right, uh, or alive right. You, you, yes, uh, in our research and in talking with folks directly, the one thing that actually folks voluntarily offered that they would welcome would be a mentor. And so, you know, finding that mentor, maybe, you know, finding yourself, not having uh, organized mentor programs out there for being board chairs is a challenge. But yes, that's that would be an immediately successful strategy for how to get to be a chair. I should note also that um, 
many of these folks who say, uh, you know, they, they got to be a chair, they were, the, you know, while there is this phenomenon of boards selecting someone who just got on the board to be a chair, most of our folks responded saying they'd at least been in the organization for two or three years. They were going into their second term, if terms are three years. And so they had at least three years knowing the organization. But it's a surprising number of folks that get drafted to be the chair with no, absolutely no experience even in the organization. I, I don't see how that happens, why that happens. Yeah. I mean, I think too, if I come into, um, if I came into it, be the chair, I think the thing I would also want to do, my next step would be um, to set a framework so that when the next board chairman came in, that the the learning curve wasn't so intense. And then, and also that the rest of the board already had a path for what they were used to yeah. and how everything should be run. That's right. And, and uh, you know, what we might call, well, a, a good board manual would be helpful, uh, you know, and then um, uh, the the idea of a chair elect position, which helps the person at least, you know, follow the chair uh, is another solution. But but succession planning, the broader language would say that you could conceivably now this would be a board that's very sophisticated. You could conceivably say that when I recruit someone, I'm recruiting them for three years or let's say five years from now being the board chair. Mm. Right. So that, I mean, think how intentional you would need to be, but you take them. And so you put them on a committee, they move up to the chair of the committee. They move from the chair of a committee. That's not, uh, you know, if you only have a couple of committees, it's not going to be that simple, but you move them up to be then on the leadership team where they play a non-chair role, but some kind of an officer, and then eventually they become the officer. I mean, that's a succession planning process that that would be very uh, effective also in raising chairs potential, or raising individuals potential to be effective chairs. I mean, I I personally don't interact a lot with boards and board chairmen um, in, in my role of financing solutions, but it's just like when I, when they're signing for a line of credit, um, one of the things that we require is that the board has to approve it. Yep. So, so, um, so I often see, you know, there might be three members or might be five members. There's often, you know, for a small nonprofit, the, the board is pretty small and it's, you know, it's often someone you knew, it could be a family member, right. you know, those, those type of things. I, I, my question is, are, are the people on the boards for smaller nonprofits, are they actually on committees? Uh, sadly, uh, the smaller nonprofits tend to have more committees than the large nonprofits. Oh. <laughs> uh, you know, they have a program committee. So those are the people that go off and do X, Y, Z. Then they have fundraising. a fundraising committee. Right. Right. Uh, sometimes, and we hope that this is changing, they have a governance committee, which is actually doing the work that we're talking about. Yeah. Um, they have, a, you know, them with a finance committee. And uh, yeah, I, it's amazing the number of committees sometimes folks uh, create. So, but it's, I, and, and it is true that the board members typically are on a committee, committee even if it's a small nonprofit. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, they split them up. Small boards have a challenge, of course, you know, really tiny boards like the six-person board. And most states uh, permit a three-person board being the number. Well, that that's a committee of the whole. You don't really need a committee. But... Um, 
folks with you know six, that's going to be a challenge to have a, more than one committee if you have one. A task force is all the alternative. And so with a smaller board, uh, 12, let's say, or that's an average, uh, then you can afford to have task forces much more effective, actually, uh, where they, they have a sunrise and sunset. They have very defined tasks, very deliver, you know, defined deliverable, much more effective methodology than these standing committees. The only standing committee I think an organization really needs, a board needs, is the governance committee. Yeah. I mean, from your experience, have you through your experience, Mike, been involved with nonprofits that have failed? Oh, yeah, that's part of my specialty. I actually, uh, yes, we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> okay. So in your experience um, from nonprofits that have failed, um, would you would you uh, attribute a large majority of that to the um, board? Or is it is it is there a majority of fact something else that contributed to that factor? When the day is done and a board and an organization fails, the board uh, likely did not um, uh, did not set parameters, did not do planning, did not understand its mission, did not hire effectively, uh, did not uh, was not prudent. Uh, more more likely than anything, didn't wasn't. Uh, prudent was not uh, risk preventive or uh, mitigator. Uh, did not did not uh, was not compliant, and and didn't oversee those things. And so, if we say boards do nothing more than hire a good exec and oversee or ensure risk prevention and mitigation and compliance, they likely failed on the second count, if not the first, also. So. Um... So then the next section that I want to talk about is selecting, right? Yeah. Selecting board members, selecting a board chair. Um, I mean, uh, we could start off by the board chairs. Talk, tell us a little bit about your experience in, in you know, best practices for selecting board chairs. And I know you talked about it already, which was, of course, you know, look at people like they, when you bring them on the board, like, oh, this could be a good person for a chairman yes. in a couple of years from now. So tell us some other things. So uh, first of all, with with the strong introduction to diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, a strong emphasis, particularly by community foundations around the country and now, you know, the bigger foundations, uh, we are changing the... Uh, and this is not new. This is just being heightened emphasis. But, you know, this has been DEI is a, a strategy and an approach that's been going on for a good 15, 20 years, just very poorly implemented. Uh, but that is changing the the way boards are thinking about recruitment in general, never mind with the officers uh, or in addition to officers. So I think the recruitment strategies are shifting so that we do recognize uh, and now i think this is a almost hopeful as well as practical uh, that um, there are boards that are using their committees to find folks recognizing leadership in that group and advancing them to be chair of the board or chair of the committee and then an officer and then chair of the board um, so i think 
that is a pathway that makes sense, uh, again, with, with diversity uh, and inclusion in mind. Uh, I think this onboarding question is another point, though, that is being adopted really strongly emphasizing the uh, bringing out of skills, the cultural adaptation to the way the board is run or might be run. Uh, those are variables that boards are now considering when they start thinking about looking for individuals who both can serve on the board and eventually be leadership. So I think those are a couple of the key questions, but uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion is playing a significant role and, and it should, uh, you know, with the emphasis that, look, we got we have a, tra a, a, a history of white boards who are serving communities that don't look like them. So how in, you know, they can read and they can get reports, but do they really understand the condition and the state of folks? And the answer is generally no. So they really need to actually change the composition of the board and then in time change the composition of the leadership as a result of the changing composite composition of the board. So this, this emphasis, and now we move to the one other point, which is most boards have recruited from their network. And so if they're white, they often recruited from their network of folks who likely are more white than them, than, than other folks that they're choosing. And so they don't even, even know necessarily how to reach out beyond their networks. That is a change now as well, which, which should offer us way more opportunities for folks who could be leaders, for folks who could be regular members. I, I think this is a new opera, set of opportunities that will change the way boards recruit and then are able to select uh, the folks who have the most potential to be their leader. Yeah, I think if I was involved in, um, you know, if I was an executive director, um, I would and I would make sure my first um, couple, my first let's say first uh, board chairman was was good. Like even if you know, even if I initially had a a uh, a, a board that was put together, um, you know, just sporadically, I would say, okay, if we're going to continue to grow as a nonprofit, my next executive director, I'm sorry, my next board chairman has to have strong leadership skills. Once I then hand select that, that person or the reverse, um, where you're a board chairman and you go to select an executive director, um, I think, I mean, what would you say, whose role is it to, primary role is to uh, put together a board, uh, build the board, and to keep adding people to the board? Is it the board chairman or is it the executive director? Uh, so let's go back to where we began, which is the question of who's the owner. Yep. If I'm the owner, it is my job to bring in the folks that are going to be share my ownership. I believe it's the board's job. Now, do I see that in practice? No, I see execs out there doing the recruitment after many, many years of board, you know, board's been around a long time, organization been around a long time. Who's doing the recruiting, the exec, is that yeah. correct or right? Yeah. No. Yeah. But it, it's it's the process, uh, the practice that's often what happens. And I think that's the failure of the board. The board hasn't understood it's their job. 
they've placed the burden on the exec. The exec gets the messages from the foundations that diversity matters. Uh, so they go out and they look to recruit. Board, this is a board job. This is what a governance committee should be helping the board do, look for and recruit, give them criteria. This is a failure. This is a gross failure on the part of boards that that basically lean to their execs. Not that execs wouldn't be in the position to identify prospects, but uh, that it's not their job. Not their job. Yeah, I mean, the other thing I've heard from past podca- podcasts that I've done on boards has been that um, often the the, um, the the people who get onto boards, and you alluded to it earlier too, are the people who've given the most money to the nonprofit. Yep. You know, and then often the executive director was like, you know, you know, and they and then the executive director of course sees that as an opportunity to get more money yep. for the nonprofit. Hey, you know, you would be a great board member and and then the person certainly gets involved and they see that they need more things the, the nonprofit does and, and they donate more money. Yep. Um what what are your thoughts on that whole subject matter? Yeah, I I think, first of all, the board failed in figuring out what its composition needs to be. So if if the board believes that, first of all, it's the kind of board. If it's a fundraising board, the board spends a lot of time and energy doing that, and they have not assigned fundraising as the primary job of the exec, then they need to recognize that they're going to need some folks who have resources or access to resources sitting with them. But I don't think that the... I think it's a, you separate out the question. Uh, if if board members have a lot of money and they sit on the board, that doesn't dismiss their responsibility to govern, right? I do not see fundraising inherently a governance job. Fundraising is the volunteer and mission-focused uh, responsibility that comes with doing the governance job. So, so if you separate those things out, then why not have all the rich people you can? Yes, you'll attract more money, uh, but that doesn't exempt the rich folks from doing the the governing work. And so that's that's an important uh, component of how we frame uh, having rich folks or not. That doesn't, you know, uh, the exec would be right to say to the board, "Hey, folks, you want a lot of money? You're going to need some rich people." And or you know we're using that as a as a proxy, but um, you're going to need a bunch of rich people, and so the board's going to decide how would it attract rich people to the organization, and how many of them really want to be in a governing position? Do they really need to govern to and be rich? Uh, that's a different set. You know, separate that out. That's a that's a conversation for the governance committee and then the board to reconcile. I, I, there are consequences, obviously, of not having rich people on the board, but I, I think they're these are mutually exclusive conversations. Yeah, I think that um, what I would say, like the board I was involved with, uh, you know, one of the things. Listen, it's hard. You, you know, trying to find a lot of people to be on the board is challenging, right? Yep. So, yep. you know, it's it always is, and you know, if you have someone who's job it is to recruit board members on a constant basis, then that helps. And I think, you know, the ability to have a junior board member, so that way you can kind of try them out, you know, put them on a committee, have them come come to the the, the board meetings, but have them sit on the side and ask them just to, you know, be observant 
And then that way you can see, hey, is this person going to be disruptive? Is this person going to be good? Are they going to add value to the board? It kind of allows you, like the minor leagues in baseball, yes. right? Yes. You, you kind of can get a feel for them before you put them into the majors. That's right. There, yeah. There's actually some nonprofit somewhere that's a national that that actually specializes in helping what you just labeled the junior board. I don't like using them as a junior. I don't like the language board, junior yeah. board, right? Because there's yeah. only one board. One, yeah. one governing board. But I like the idea of a junior group, which are, you know, which learn the ropes, learn the organization more importantly, and learn how to then prepare to fill a board seat. So yeah, I, I, was I, looking, I, like I was looking at it. Uh, that's fine. I was looking at it from another standpoint, and that is don't don't put somebody on the board who is uh, that you don't know already yeah that, that you don't know their skill sets and those other things green right you don't need green people to be on the board and i don't yeah. need the green party even though i voted for them <laughs> so what what about uh now the last section uh supporting board chairs tell us a little bit about your ideas in regards to that so I know there's an old-fashioned concept of the care and feeding of board, and I, I do. I, I, we don't have the same burden right now in terms of of uh, virtual meetings, which is the predominant way that boards are meeting. But you know, back when they met in person, care and feeding meant literally care and feeding. You create an environment, a culture that allows folks, and that's the the challenge, which I think is the governance committee's challenge, which is to create a culture where folks, and this is the supporting question, where folks feel like they're part of the group, that they're not excluded, uh, that their voice counts, that their opinions matter, that they get opportunity to uh, be a part of a committee and that they don't look at committees as burdens, but as opportunities where they get to you know, use their skills. That one of those supporting methods is, so I have an accountant on board. Where does the accountant go? Well, the accountant's always the treasurer. No. The account doesn't need to be a treasurer. They didn't join to be accountants. They joined to support mission. So let them take a different role. That's supporting a board chair, a board person. Um, so I think there's a variety of those kind of um, what look like surfacy approaches. I, I think they're actually significant in creating culture and comfort on the part of board members so that they uh, are, are uh, you know, wanting to be there. I think also you have good policies and procedures. I think that uh, managing meetings is in, done in a way that is supportive of everyone, that everyone, again, has voice. Uh, that's another supporting effort. I think we also have to have those, com those painful conversations about what time's a good meeting. Do we really need uh, a meeting every month? Uh, and, and then last and most important is I am a big fan of dashboards both a finance dashboard and a program dashboard, which really helps the board understand how, how far are we getting to mission. Um, and then with that, the other, the other element, particularly in meetings, is the mission moment that, that I, I really believe I want my exec or their staff to tell me a story about what's the, organ, what's the case, who's the person that was being supported, uh, what did you do, and what happened. And, and I think, you know, that, that catalyst, that drives board members to want to give, to want to get, to want to come up to meetings, to want to be a part of board committees. 
Yeah, so, I mean, all good stuff. I think, you know, we listen to what you're saying, Mike, and, you know, I think we, we all can uh, learn, uh, just start to pick it apart and realize that being a board chair is, a, is, in essence, a profession. And like at any profession, you have to learn it and really spend some time on it. Um, yep. It, you know, you, you had said, and we got about, a, you know, just a, a minute or so left, um, how is the state of board chairs? How is that going right now in the United States? Uh, what, if you had to kind of sum it up, what would you say? It's clearly being stressed by the COVID situation. Get virtual meeting management is not intuitive. Uh, and so I think board chairs are being a bit stressed by that. How do they keep folks engaged? Uh, how do they even make sure that board members want to still be board members? Uh, although we did a recent study, uh, I and Gail uh, from Cause and Effect uh, did this recent study, and we found that there's better attendance at virtual meetings. So this is good for board chairs. Um, I, I think they're on a rise of learning. I don't think we're anywhere near uh, success. Well, it's very good. It was a great podcast. I really, really enjoyed listening to what you're saying. And uh, you know, so I think it's very timely as well. So um, I'd like to thank very much Mike Burns from BWB Solutions. If you like today's podcast, please feel free to share it with a friend and also subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. If you like today's podcast, please give us a review on your podcasting app to help us get the word out. And of course, if you're looking for a line of credit for your nonprofit, you can call us at 862-207-4118 or visit our website at nonprofitmbapodcast.com. Mike, if anyone wants to get in touch with you, how can they reach you? Uh, quickest is uh, Mike B at bwbsolutions.com. But my phone number is 203-508-1462. And your website's uh, bwbsolutions.com? You got it. Yeah, yeah, great. Um, so, Mike, thanks for coming on board today. Most welcome. It's been fun. And uh, for all of our listeners out there, I mean, it's been a tough couple of years, and certainly this is a challenging one. But, you know, I just want to thank everyone for just making the world a better place. Thanks for listening today, and have a great day, and stay safe. <laughs>